Take your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 6. We're going to be in Acts 6 and 7 is where we're going to be. And again, if the uh, uh, video did not show it, again, that's a group that is going to be in uh, South Asia. And they'll be in there for the next uh, 10 to 14 days. And what they're doing uh, is they are basically going to be ministering to missionaries. There's hundreds of missionaries coming in. And they're going to be able to worship in their own uh, native tongue. They're going to have vacation Bible schools. There'll be um, uh, student ministries going on. So we are ministering to the ministers over there for the next uh, 10 to 14 days. So uh, pray for them. All right, long, uh, it's like, it's AAA major league ball when you go that far uh, over there. So pray for them. But again, that's a great demonstration of really what we're talking about today. And that is we want our church not to be an audience that comes and watches, but an army that actually goes out. We want the gospel to go deep into our souls, deep into our heart, but then deep into us and then wide uh, from us, from Western North Carolina to Franklin, to Atlanta, to Ecuador, uh, to Asia to London. We want the gospel to go deep and then to go wide. So uh, here's where we are today. We're going to be looking at really what I would just call a profile of what, uh, when I say an ordinary Christian, that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when you look through history, whether it be the book of Acts or church history after the book of Acts, you see that the tip of the spear was not the professionals. It was not the preachers. It was not even the apostles that the tip of the spear was an ordinary, ordinary men and women who loved Jesus and then God used them. And I would say the challenge for us in this series is kind of twofold. Congregational-wise, uh, we're trying to make sure that we are focused on what the Bible tells the church to be focused on. Uh, it's not that easy. There's about, uh, there's about uh, 55,000 churches that will close their doors in our country in the next seven years. Uh, by all estimates, that's 55,000 in seven years. Uh, there's only about 20% of churches in our country that are growing. And of those 20% that are growing, only about 5% are growing through anything but what we call transfer growth. That means just getting other saints from other places to come to your place instead of going to that other place. Only 5% are by just basically winning people, making disciples, and then building disciples to make more disciples. All right, so we as a congregation, we want to be challenged, all right? Are we focused on what God is focused on? Uh, church, it's very easy for churches to become just either a kind of a luxury liner or if not a luxury liner, a museum. There's a, actually a boat that is uh, called the Queen Mary that years and years ago when it was made, it was the most luxurious luxury liner that had ever been made. It was made for very, very wealthy people to go on there and basically have services done to them. And then World War II happened and then they commandeered the Queen Mary and they made it a battleship. And it went from only having like 3,000 beds to housing 15,000. And it all depended on what your mindset was. Was it a peacetime mentality or was it a wartime mentality? And so now it, what it, is, it is a museum. It's a museum where people come and look at these two different mindsets. Uh, what we want to be clear on is our mindset is one where we want to equip an army, not just have an audience that comes for an hour or two hours one day a week. You're like, well, how's that going to happen? How's that going to Well, there's a, there's a challenge for us, and then there's a challenge for you. The challenge for you is this. I don't know, but there's not a person in this room that... I don't care what your age is. A lot of times people put it to different ages or walks of life, and they're like, well, this is Gen X, or the millennials really want this. I don't know of a per. I've, I've talked to people of all ages, and any Christ follower that is even remotely on fire for the Lord wants his or her life to make a difference. They want to know what, you know what, this is my purpose that God made me for. I'm walking to some degree in that purpose, and I'm making a difference in some people's lives. That might be a compassion kid over in Ecuador. That might be the class that I teach here at some public school. But I want my life to make a difference. Now, all that to be said is this, is 
most people would understand that, you know what, you make a decision, you probably have four or five windows that come around in your life. Four or five windows that come around in your life. Opportunities where you make a decision to say, this is what my life is going to be about. These are the values that I'm going to stand for. This is what my life, I don't want my life to just be a ripple in the lake of life and it just makes a little ripple and then nobody even knows I made a difference at all. And so what we're doing today is uh, we're about how do we equip, how do we equip people? How do we equip people? And we see Jesus doing that. Jesus is not against crowds. There was times when he preached to 15,000 people and he would rejoice in that and the disciples would rejoice in that. But if you get down to actually what he focused on, it wasn't the 15,000, nothing wrong with that. He focused on when he ascended into heaven, there was 120 people who he had given the word of God and the Holy Spirit of God, and they within two generations had flipped the whole world upside down. How did he do that? He equipped disciples to make disciples. He equipped an army, not just an audience. And so uh, collectively as a church, we're looking at that. And then as us as individuals, we are looking at that. And that's really the way it's always been. All right, if we're going to be in, again, we're going to be in the book of Acts. Almost all the messages are going to be in the book of Acts. We had a few more in here. And if you haven't been here, the book of Acts is not about philosophy. It's not about morality as much. It's not even about uh, ideology. It is about history, okay? It's a history of the early church. How did God move in the early Christian faith? And we call it Be the Movement because we, what we've understood is that at its inception, the Christian Christianity was basically a movement that was based on a conviction that Jesus Christ came to live the sinless life and he died as a substitute for sinners, was buried and rose from the grave validating he was exactly who he says he was and then gave his people a mission. That's what it's about. But then what we got the book of Acts is about the history of how God moved in that. The author of the book of Acts is a guy by the name of Luke. He was a white-collar physician, highly educated, highly articulate, that wrote both the gospel of Luke, what Jesus did, and then he wrote the book of Acts. That's kind of like the, 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 the sequel. The sequel is like, this is what Jesus did, this is the prequel, and this is now the sequel. This is what God continued to do through his people in the book of Acts. And so we're going to look again at a, we're not looking at a professional. We're not looking at, we're not looking at Peter, which is kind of, he's kind of the main guy in like the first half of the book of Acts. We're not even looking at Paul that much. He's in the, he's the main guy in the back half of the book of Acts. We're looking at, to some degree, we're looking at the wedge. We're looking at the person that God used who was not a preacher. He was not an apostle. We're looking at that guy. And he was the one that basically took Peter and Paul, and he was the bridge in between the two. And again, the whole time you're like, okay, I want, how do I make a difference where, where I live? How do I make a difference? Because the gospel has made a move throughout the world. It's made a move throughout the world. It's growing faster in Africa and China than it is right here in the States. It's swept through the entire world. But here's the point for you. For many of you, it hasn't swept through your community. It hasn't swept through your school. It hasn't swept through your sphere of influence. It hasn't swept through your generation of college students. It hasn't swept through your workplace. And to some degree, that's what it's about. You cannot be responsible for everybody, neither can I. You're not responsible for everybody. You are responsible for those that God puts around you. You and I are responsible for our generation. It's like, you know what? This is our watch. And so with that in mind, we're going to be in Acts. We're going to do a lot of the work on the front end for about maybe eight to ten minutes. So it's like, man, think. All right, think. We're going we're gonna to work through a passage, and then we're going to give you some tools. What is it that God gives every single one of us that's a Christ follower? There's not a person in here who does not have that. Whether you're seven years old and you love Jesus or whether you're 97 years old and you love Jesus, there's three things that you're going to see this ordinary believer who God used in an extraordinary way like he can use you. 
Here's where we are. Acts chapter 6. Uh, we'll spend the time on a couple of these verses more so than others. But Acts 6, this is the first part of the first verse. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number. All right, let's just kind of halt there for just a second. By this point, the church is an enormous movement. They don't know exact numbers, but somewhere between 10 and about probably 14 or 15,000 people were now Jesus' followers. In a, mat, a short amount of 10 to 14,000 people were now brand new believers, all right, brand new believers. And that's a ton in any form or fashion. It's a huge amount when you think that the city of Jerusalem, by most estimates, were, had a, probably had a population of about 40,000 at the time. But up until this point in the book of Acts, the churches had nothing but wins, nothing but wins. Win this, win this, preaching, win evangelism, win, converts, win, all this stuff is just win, 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 win. And now, for the first time to some degree, the church has a loss. The church has a fail. And that's pretty good for us because every single church, every single local church, it's mentioned 115 times in the New Testament, 115 times is the, local, is the church mentioned, 100 times it's the local church, and none of them are perfect some of them are more jacked up than others, but just understand, no matter what church you go to, there's going to be some fails, including this one. Here's the fail. A complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews. Now, all right, we're not really, we're not big into like, okay, digging down. And the Greek says this, but it's pretty enlightening to understand this right here. This word complaint right here, actually in the Greek, when you break it all down in the Greek, it actually is where we get our word Facebook from, okay? When you say that word complaint, it means Facebook. If you look at the Hebrew, it actually means Twitter if you just dig down in the original languages. But it says a complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So what was going on? Uh, a little bit of context, the Hellenists were basically Jews who had absorbed a lot of the Greek culture around them. They would be, you know, they'd kind of be the progressives of the day, if you will. And then so the, or, what happened was the Orthodox Jews would look down on the progressive Jews. They would look down on the Hellenists in such a way that now the Hellenists were like, wait a minute, my mom is not getting the same food that that Orthodox Jewish widow is getting. Now, by the way, that was a day when there was no social safety net. So if you were a widow, you were extremely vulnerable. And if your family had passed away before you, you were extremely vulnerable. You had nobody, you had nothing, you had nothing at all that you could do. And so what happened is the church actually started ministering to people, not just spiritually, but also, but also physically. And as that was going on, this complaint arose and it says it was against the Hebrews. Now, understand what was going on. Against the Hebrews means that they didn't take it to the leaders. They just started to talk and it's gotten too big. And you can just imagine the complaint, the word complaint there does mean actually murmur or mutter. It's the idea of saying, they don't, they don't care about us anymore at all. Or we've grown so bad. I don't know everybody's name at all. I can't park my camel in the front parking lot like I used to. And they were just na, 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 na. And so what happened is they started to fracture a little bit. And there was actually even a racial element in this whole thing too because the Hellenists were kind of had a different ethnicity and they were like, okay, the reason that you're not taking care of our widows is actually a racial issue. And so you had a lot of tension, a lot of tension in the church. And what you see is in Acts 4, Satan attacks church. Really, Satan attacks the church through the government that persecuted them. In Acts 5, Satan attacks the church through the hypocrisy of the embezzlement of a guy named Ananias. And then in chapter 6, he attacks the church not from the outside, but he's actually from the inside. 
He attacks it through the people. He's just like, you know, this is, this is wrong. This is going to happen. And so here's what goes on, verse 2 through verse, uh, let's go through verse 5, all right? And the 12, okay, here's the solution, all right? We've we got re, to reorg this a little bit because it's like you got 14,000. You go from 120 to 14,000 in a matter of months. You better reorganize to some degree. This is what they do. And the 12 summoned, some people are like, you know, the church should not ever organize. Church should not ever, if you're a parent, okay, imagine this. Imagine you have two children. You have two children. You're like, hey, we got our organization. We got our plan down. This is the way we operate, okay? And then imagine you go from two you're like to three. No, imagine you go from two to let's say 70 children in a matter of months, all right? You would have to, we got to figure something out, bigger car, bigger house, bigger van, something. That's what's going on. And so the 12, they summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Do not read that is that the apostles are already sudden too good to serve tables. Every indication was, every indication was they've been doing that for six chapters, but what happened is it got so out of control. It's like, we got to equip some other people to pull the weight here or everything's going to get neglected. So here's what goes on. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men, and this is high standards, good repute or reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom. Wisdom is biblical common sense. Uh, can I take what's in the, on the page and actually put it into life? That's wisdom. Whom we will appoint to this duty couple more verses. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And actually, you can see they're equipping, they're equipping leaders as well. And what they said, it pleased the whole gathering. They chose Stephen. This is our guy today. A man full of faith and the Holy Spirit and Philip. And you're going, well, who, who, who are the rest of the guys? Who are the rest of the guys? Okay. Let me just, let me go for the rest of the guys. All right. Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon. You're like, Timon's in there? I didn't know Timon was... Anyway, sorry. And you're like, Parmenas, and you're like, did, did you say that correctly? You don't even know if I did or not, correct? You don't even know if I do. You, here's, the, here's the rule. Here's the rule. Uh, if you don't know how to pronounce it, say it confidently, say it quickly, and just move on because nobody actually knows how they're actually saying it anyway. So uh, Nicholas and a proselyte, I'll let you help me on this last one. What is that last word? A proselyte of Antioch. See, you, this 11 o'clock is always the brainchild, always the, the mensa. So... Um, but let me just, let me, let me say a couple things about here. Um, again, don't think the apostles were thinking they were too good to do the widow's care. Uh, the apostles were servants. Um, uh, the apostles were servants. I mean, think about this. They followed a guy who washed their stinky, nasty feet. All right, that's who they were following. So they were not going, oh, we're too good to wait tables. Uh, Jesus, you know, Jesus washed their feet to show them, you know, it's, it's about service. Here's what they realized. They realized that the greatest service they could provide was we got we to equip the people by teaching the word. we got to pray, and we got to equip some more leaders, and that's what they do. All right? So let's go to a couple more verses here. Let's go to verse 7 and 8, and you'll see, kind of see what happens. All right, the word of God continued to increase. This is what you want. And the number of the disciples multiplied. Again, it's not adding. It's multiplying. You're like, what's the difference? Addition is when I preach and somebody comes to Christ. That's addition. One, 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 one. And I will say this. I love it. I love, I love when I get stories. I love when I get stories of somebody going, you know what? I was at your church Sunday and I prayed to receive Christ and, and I've gotten followed up on. I love that. You know what I love more? What I love more, I love more than that, is when I hear a story from one of you that you led somebody in your coworker or the person that plays on your ball team or somebody in your family. When you led somebody to Christ, you know what that is? That's multiplication. That means me teaching you and then you going and you discipling others. And that's really what the model is. It's multiplication. It's not addition. That's what's happening in the book of Acts. 
The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests uh, became obedient uh, to their faith. All right, we're going to come back to that. That's actually a pretty amazing, amazing deal. Some people say that's the start of the deacon ministry. We don't know. It could be. I would actually say it probably is. It just doesn't say deacon in there. This is a description of what they did, but it's really, you can't 100% be for sure if their baby picture should be right there or not. So uh, verse 8. And here's Stephen, Stephen, full of grace and power, that's what you want to be, right? Full of grace and power, grace and truth, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So Stephen is an ordinary person. He's brand new to leadership. God uses him in a great way. I'm going to fast forward and then we're going to end, uh, we're going to do one part of chapter seven and then figure out where we live. Here it is. Stephen goes in that, he'd been equipped, he'd been discipled. He goes out and he preaches a sermon. It's the longest recorded sermon in the book of Acts. I mean, he takes Old Testament. He is just, he is doing a masterful job. First sermon as far as we can tell. My, my first sermon was actually at a, at a uh, flea market in Grand Prairie, Texas. First one ever, all right? This guy in seminary is like, hey, you want to preach for me? I'm like, and I thought to myself, I don't need to tell you I've never done this before. He's like, preach for me at a flea market at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning in Grand Prairie, Texas. I'm like, on, man. I went in there, and it was all the people who had all those booths. This is like a reason I do not ever, ever, ever want to ever go to a flea market again. It's like, you want to go to hell or a flea market? I'm like, I'm not sure, actually. I'm really not sure because it sounds synonymous to me, all right? It sounds synonymous, but bottom line is this was, that was my first sermon. Uh, Stephen's first sermon was amazingly much more fruitful than mine was in Grand Prairie, and he teaches this and leads all these people to Christ, and people get upset because these people are being converted. And let me give you one little section in chapter 7, and this is kind of what their reaction is. All right. Which of the prophets did your, and this is not like a seeker sermon. This is not like, hey, two steps to your best life now. That's not what this is. This is like in your face. I'm taking Jesus through the whole Old Testament. Let me say it again. If it's not crystal clear, all right, Jesus is in the Old Testament as well. All right. You don't just take, unhinge yourself from the Old Testament. The Old Testament points to Jesus. All right. The Old Testament sets it up. The Old Testament tells us about our sin and shows us our need for Jesus. And so you get to this part. He uses that whole train of thought and then in chapter 7 and verse 52, it says, which of your prophets, which of the prophets did your fathers not, per-? he's talking about their daddy now. It's like your dad killed all the prophets and they killed those who announced beforehand, what, the coming of the righteous one. You see what he's saying? He's saying all those prophets, part of their ministry was not just calling their nation to repent. It was preparing a way for Jesus and Jesus to come. And that's the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered couple more verses here. You who received the law as delivered, he's talking about the Jewish people got the law by angels and did not keep it. And then verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. I mean, they were so angry and they ground their teeth at him. I don't know if cats do this or not. Dogs will periodically do this, all right? They will, they will figure out a way they will lift up their lips, show their teeth to like, we're ticked at you. That is what is going on. So I'm going to save, I'm going to save their other verses for the, for the end. I want to give you some tools right now. You're like, I want to make a difference. You know, as I said before, this is not a generational thing. I've looked in the eyes of CEOs who are 63 
And they've got all that, all they've done everything. They've done everything. They got the house. They got the house by the lake. They got the boat. They got all the stuff that they'd worked for. They got, they can retire early. They got all this stuff. And they're like, it's got to be more than that. It's got to be more than that. I've also seen the 20 year old who's like, it's got to have a purpose for me. Is it to be a doctor or a lawyer? And that's all fine. But bottom line, what you want to ask is, what does God want to do with me macro so that I can then say, you know what? My life made a difference at the end of 20, 30, 60, 70 years. Um, I'm talking to the David's men guys tonight. And one of the things I'm going to share with them is it's been one year since I was in my study right before uh, the services on a Sunday. And they're like, you know what? Your mom passed this morning. Your mom passed. And so I came in here and preached and I'd made the worst decision than to drive to Texas. I could have taken a plane and been there quicker, but I just drove. And as I was driving, I was again thinking, I was thinking, I was thinking, all right, all right, there's going to be a day. I was mourning, but I was also thinking there's going to be a day. Because it, it makes you sober. It makes you sober to think that, you know what, there is going to be a day when somebody's going to get a phone call about you. And what is your life going to have stood for? What are the values? And I would say it again. There's like four or five different little windows in time where you make a decision. This is what I'm going to be about. And I pray this is one of them. And here's what God will give you. The first one is this. He'll give you hands to serve. He'll give you hands to serve. Stephen is introduced in here as a servant. He's a good theologian. He's a phenomenal preacher. He's a brand new leader in the church. Uh, but bottom line is what he was is he was initially called on to do what? To wait tables and give food to widows who were not that influential at that point. And you could look at this and go, what difference is he making? Well, look at it in the big picture. He helped unify a church that could have been fractured early on. He ended up actually, did you ever notice that little phrase at the end? It says, and many priests came to the Lord. Look at down there. I think it's like verse seven or eight. I had that verse is so unusual because a lot of other people came to Christ as well. But it says, and many priests came to faith in Jesus. Why come out and say the priests came to Jesus? The only thing I can think of is this. The priests, they were the ones that actually crucified Jesus. They're the ones that were like, crucify him, crucify him. They hated Jesus. They hated Jesus' followers. But the job of the priest was actually also to help poor people. And it was actually also to help the widows. And maybe, just maybe, God began to soften their heart when they saw the church actually serving the poor. It's like, hey, we're going to do this as well. God softened their heart. And then he heard the gospel. And then they came to Christ. So what does God give you? He gives you hands to serve. Is it impactful? Well, here it unified the church. Here it softened the hearts of the priest. And I'll tell you what it also did is it softened. It did something with a guy named Saul. We'll see it at the end. There's a guy named Saul who becomes the apostle Paul who writes half of the New Testament. God actually puts him in a place where he sees the way Stephen reacts to people who don't react well to Stephen. And so what does God give you? God gives you hands that can serve. And let me be clear, Biltmore Church, that's what we want to be. We want to be a place that's characterized just in the DNA as a place that serves. Now, I will commend you to say that you do this really, really well. I will say this, you do it well. You do it well. I could go on and on and on about all the stories. I picked a handful of them this week of stories that are just kind of, that I get. But here's just a few stories about the way that you guys serve other people. One example is here, we're going to license the largest group of foster care parents into foster care ministry uh, here in about a month. That's the largest one that we've done since we started our five-year initiative about a year or two ago. So great job on that. Here's a couple more. Two weeks ago, we built more foster family. Remember our rule? Remember our rule? Okay, thank you. Okay. Well done, well done. Man, that quick one, quick, quick 11 o'clock. Okay, two weeks ago, Biltmore, uh, Biltmore foster family received a placement. They went to get their newborn baby. They called us on the way. 
to the hospital to pick the baby up. Don't miss this. They go, they're going to get, they get a call, come pick up your baby. They go to pick up the baby. By the time they got home with their foster child, there were diapers, there was newborn clothes, there was meals, there was pacifiers, all this stuff waiting on their doorstep by the foster care support care team. All right, that's all the folks that you're not, you might be 70 years old, but you're supporting those that are actually taking care of the least of these. So great job on that. The deacons at East Asheville campus, they helped a disabled veteran move from his home in Swannanoa to an apartment off of Tunnel Road. He's not a believer. They were able to help him move. They were able to share the gospel with him. You're like, well, how do we even know about them? Listen to this. The way we got connected with him because the manager in one of the apartments that we serve in Survey 28 one of those apartment managers told the veteran social worker, if you need some help with that guy, you contact Biltmore Church. That's like, how did they know that? Well, that's a social worker saying, we might not agree with what you do, but we love the way that you serve. Here's another one. Prison ministry. Inmate at the prison's father was in the hospital recently, and some of our Biltmore and Espanol, some of those volunteers, they went to visit and pray for him. And because of their visit, the father has been much more open to the gospel. And the son, who is actually now, he's in prison, he's the inmate, he can actually now share the gospel with his dad when his dad comes and visits him. And give you one more. This is from a a group out in Franklin, one of our connect groups out in Franklin, they serve their normal one is at the Smoky Mountain Pregnancy Care Center, one of the local partners. They collect supplies in their group on a regular basis. And when they expanded, when the, when the adoption agency, they expanded into Jackson County. They're like, hey, we expanded to Jackson County. Now, hence, remember, Franklin is in Macon County. It's not in Jackson County, okay? It's kind of outside. And I would just tell you that the campus pastor, Patrick, he did not call up this connect group and go, hey, did you know that your partner expanded into Jackson County? He found this out secondhand that that connect group actually went and before they opened up, did all of the landscaping for the pregnancy help center as they expanded into Jackson County. So all that being said, great job, great job. Bad part is, the part I got to press in a little bit is, is sometimes when you're in a part of something that's kind of moving and shaking and going on and a lot of stuff is happening, a lot of times you can sit in a seat just like you are and actually talk about all this stuff and you really are not part of it. So the question is, is where do you serve? Do you have one place? That's what we ask. Is you have one place that you actually serve at any time during the week? You're like, I don't even know how to do it. Easiest way is to ask your campus pastor. Just say, hey, campus pastor, where do you need some help? Second easiest way is text the word serve to 28282. Say, you know what? I'm open to whatever. Like, I don't even know what I would do. I've never served before. I mean, I got all these unusual gifts and I'm like pretty awesome. And I don't know if you all really realize how awesome. Hey, listen, there's no, we got PhDs in the parking lot, okay? So don't sit there and go, I'm too good to do. There, nobody in here is too good to do anything. Nobody is too good to do anything, right? Jesus washed our feet. So nobody is above setting up tables or doing anything. But in a, in a perfect world, you do work on your, what they call shape, I think that was Rick Warren that probably had the shape analogy or the shape acronym. That's a pretty good one. All right, we do place ministry here, but shape is a pretty good one. All right, shape is that acronym. It's like S is your spiritual gift. H is your heart, what's your heart into. Uh, a is your, I think, your ability. All right, what abilities has God, have God given you? P is like your passion. All right, E is your experience. What experience do you have? Well, I've got an experience. Maybe it's a tough experience. Maybe it's a very, very difficult experience. Well, you know what? God gave you those scars, those scars right there. He wants to heal those up, but then those end up being a testimony and a part of your ministry later on. So uh, other people, you've read the 
Jim Collins books and they go the ability, the affinity, the affirmation, whatever, whatever you want to do, whatever. It's just the bottom line is uh, we want to equip you to be a part of that. We want our church to be like that. That's why we spend so much time focusing even on people who come to church and they come onto the campus. 70% of new people decide in the first seven minutes, am I ever going to come back? What does that mean? That means you actually, just by the way you serve people when you come onto the campus today, even by the way that you treat people on the way out, that can make a huge impact on somebody's life. First seven minutes, that's before the first drumbeat. That's before the first word of the sermon. They've already made up their mind. This is, this is a place I will come back to. Um, if you don't know any other thing, just have your mindset. Remind yourself, I jotted this down for me. It's like remind yourself at the start of every day that I'm God's servant, that Jesus served me so I serve other people. Just see the need right in front of you. I guarantee if you go home today, you'll probably, if you really look, you'll see some need. You imagine if you're a teenager and you go up to your mom and say, hey, mom, I got a couple extra hours. How can I help you? And that would be like life changing Others of you, if you go to your husband, you're like, hey, how, how can I help today? How can I, instead of going to do this, I'm going to do that. How can I help today? That will go well with you, my friend. That will go well with you. That is not going to go poorly. How can I help? It's right there in front of you. Connect group. Let me just tell you this. Connect group and my connect group that we just started a month or so ago, we're actually picking our partner this week. Every connect group, listen to me, I'm going to put some of our connect group leaders on the spot today. Okay, every connect group at our church needs to have one of our 14 or so nonprofits that we work with around Western Carolina that you serve, not just once a quarter at 828, but on a regular basis. We're picking one this Tuesday at my house at my connect group that we can go and do the same thing. And if your class doesn't have a partner, like, hey, we're just kind of here to study our Bible. And it's a study your Bible about serving other people, okay? Go ahead and embarrass your teacher. Just gently go up to her and go up to him and go, hey, do we, have a, do we have a partner? No, we don't do that kind of stuff. Well, then you're not a connect group, okay? That's not what we do. We're not in there just to get a big fat head of Bible, all right? We're to learn our Bible and then put it into place. That would be the place for the applause. That would be a good one to applaud, okay? I will just go on for I'm running out of time. I almost was going to skip this, so just realize this is like point, this is like a sub point because the last point's really the biggest point, okay? And just, I would say this about Bible learn. God gives you and I some things. He gives us hands to serve, but he gives us a Bible to learn. What does that mean? That means that I, if you look in the text, Stephen, Stephen like did the longest sermon in the book of Acts and he did so much of the, he wove a bunch of Bible stuff in there. So how did he know that? He knew that because the apostles taught him, but he also knew that because he learned let me say it again. He did that because the apostles were busy discipling him, but then he was also busy applying what they taught him. I've told you a hundred times before, my biggest goal, my biggest, I've got kind of two main goals. My one goal is to try to move the, the follower of Jesus down the discipleship train a little bit, all right? But a second other goal that I've got is I want to whet your appetite anytime we look in the Bible that we're just going along here talking about different points that are already there. It's not like, oh, that's amazing. I did not see that in the text. That is a fail on my part if you don't see it in the text. I want you to see it in the text because what it reinforces is you don't have to be a professional to get in this book and understand it. You don't. I know we've got people of all different backgrounds. We've got people of backgrounds of no background, of some backgrounds that says, you know what? The professionals are the ones, the only ones that can teach you what the Bible says. That's not true. That's not true. That's not true. You can. There's not a person in this room that cannot open up the Bible, read it, and understand it and God to speak to them. I'm not saying there's not five or 10% that's difficult. I'm not saying there's five or 10% that's difficult. 
But there's like 90% in here that's like, I read that, I understand what that says. It says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's not that I don't understand it. It is difficult to apply, but I understand exactly what it means. So loved ones, here's what I want to do. Let me play good cop, bad cop for just a second. Okay, bad cop. Uh, let me play good cop. Good cop, good cop's always more fun. Good cop is this. Two weeks ago, three weeks ago, we did one of our values is what? We believe God's promises and we placed into your hand and we put on social media. We put, okay, here's a reading plan for the week. We did John 14, and here's a reading plan for the week. Monday, read this. Tuesday, read this. And thousands of you are like, I'm on that. And I saw it on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. It's like, look how awesome this is. And I encourage you, get an accountability partner, somebody that texts you and says, we're doing this. And it, was, it was so good. You're like, I just, the word's just opening up to me. Bad cop is, there are a billion, billion Bible reading plans out there. And while we want to give you everything you need to be able to read the Bible, you can do that already. You can go on the app on your phone. You and I make a choice. So if you did it back two weeks ago, I want to kind of re-challenge you. Jump back in there. God's going to put you in some places where you need to say some things for him. I'm not saying you got to go down to the drum circle, stand up in front of them and preach some sermon like Stephen did. I'm not saying you got to do that. But if you're living for Jesus, there's going to be times when somebody might just say, hey, tell me about why you've got a hope, even though, you know, even though they're laying off people at our work. Hey, you got, you got MS, and I know you got MS, or you got prostate cancer or whatever. Tell me why you, you're kind of, why you actually seem happier than you were before. What you don't want to do is do some Christian truism like God is my co-pilot. That's terrible. Don't, you need to have some verses that you've actually learned. You're like, what if I don't remember them? God's job is to bring it to mind, but you've got to put something in here first. All right, God's not going to bring it from some vacuum and give you some verse you've never read. So you and I study it, you and I read it, and then God brings it out. Is that too harsh? Okay, I hope it wasn't. But uh, bottom line is, here, here's the way the story ends. Verse, verse 56. Now, I want, to say, I want to just show it because this is going to go against the grain of, I would just call it, and again, I don't dog Western Christianity because Christianity is Christianity, whether it's in the West or China or wherever, authentic Christianity. But I think there's some, there's some thought processes that are more in the West than there are in the rest of the world when it comes to followers of Jesus. And I want to point one out to you. And here's how, here's how the story ends. Remember, they were, they were putting their teeth at him, all right, they, like cats. That's what they were doing. So, and he said, and here's what he said. He said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So, I mean, this is Stephen. God is being very gracious to Stephen, but he's about to get stoned. When he says that, because he says son of man, so they know he's talking about Jesus. They're talking about Jesus. Have you ever noticed that, and this is not meant for you to be some kind of obnoxious, self-righteous person, but I will say there's a difference. You don't catch a lot of flack nowadays in our culture when you talk about God. You start you can thank God all you want to. When you start making that specific to Jesus, then all of a sudden all bets are off. You start putting that flag into the ground and saying, I follow Jesus. Just understand it's not the same as even it was 30 years ago. There's a, that's a good and a bad thing. Okay. We'll talk about that in a second. But he, Stephen says, you know, I saw the son of man and what's their reaction. They cried out with a loud voice, stop their ears. It's like, I won't hear this anymore. And they rushed together at him. Now don't glamorize, don't romanticize these next few verses. Okay, don't put these on the back of a Hallmark card and it's like, oh, that's so cute and so inspirational. This is brutal is what this is. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. Stoned him is what you kind of imagine. 
They put you in a pit. They put you in some area. They take you out of town. They take off their coats, kind of like a relief pitcher coming in. He takes off your coat. He takes off his coat. Why? So he can like wind up better and throw better. They take off their coats and they take large rocks that were already out there and they throw it until it kills him. That's stoning him. Not glamorous, not pretty, not romantic, very real. And here's what happened. There's this little addendum here. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Put that in the back of your memory. A young man named Saul, who in about three chapters in chapter 9, converts to Jesus from his Judaism and actually says, you know what? This was where it started right here. He's watching the first Christian martyr on record. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Is that kind of ringing a bell from any other parts of the Bible? If not, this one will. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, falling asleep as a euphemism in the Bible for the Christian actually dying right there. So here's, here's where you are. Okay, certainly you've got hands you can use to serve. God actually gives you a Bible to learn, but here's the one that's probably the most poignant of this whole story, and that is every single one of us, God gives you a platform, a platform to use. It's like not a platform physically, I mean a platform. That means the ball team you play on, the neighborhoods you live in, all right, the social club that you are a part of, uh, the school you teach in, the business you run, all those are platforms, the concentric circles that are right around you, that is your platform. And we oftentimes are like, well, the Christian, you know, I think you know this, but you know, the Christian, Christianity is no longer really at the center. Now listen, I want to be, as, I want to be careful about this because sometimes it's used as a excuse as well. Christianity is pretty much, you know, it has gone from what you could say to some degree to this, from the center of our country in the last 30 or 40 years. And it has now moved to the edges of our country. I think that's fairly safe to say. All right, I'm not talking about war on Christmas or whatever. I'm just saying that it's pretty safe to say Christianity is no longer at the center. All right, it's not respected, if you will, and some of that's our own doing. We have oftentimes done disrespectful things. It's not as popular now when you plant, you know, plant Team Jesus flag right there. You don't get a lot of perks at work. The reason I say that particularly is for the 20-year-old and the 25-year-old and the 30-year-old. I've been in ministry 30 years and I would say about 30 years ago, there was a lot of that that was done, and it was, some of it was bad because, you know what, people would actually go to church. They would go to church. they go to the first Baptist this and the first whatever this, and their primary reason for going was just to network for their business. I'm going to go to church because it's good for my business. Now, you're not going to come out and say that, but bottom line is what they do is they network while they're there, and it's like, well, hey, you want to buy this, or I got this, or here's my business card, or let's get together for that. That doesn't happen much anymore. You don't see a lot of people showing up saying, hey, this will be great for my business. This will get me invited to the best parties. You don't see a whole lot of that anymore. All that to say this, Stephen did everything right. Look at me, Christian. Stephen did everything correct. I mean, th think about it. Every rule that we talk about on how do you engage your culture, Stephen did well. I mean, he knew the scriptures. He wasn't obnoxious. He was humble. He spoke in grace and in truth. He wasn't bitter, and he ended up dead. He ended up dead. He ended up stoned by people that hated him. You're like, what happened? Where's the blessing? Where's the reward? Where's the happily ever after? Where's the prosperity that the preacher on TV told me that I would have? Where's the promise of all the blessing? Where is that? He does everything right, has all this faith, and he's dead. The reason you got to understand that is this, is that... Uh, 
First of all, did, did you notice, it's, you got to picture this, Saul is watching all this happen. Now, there might even have been an official capacity because they laid their coats at him, but Saul was watching as every stone smashed into Stephen's face. As Stephen's body got mangled, because when they'd hit you in the arm, it wouldn't kill you. It was waiting until they could really get some headshots before it would actually kill you. So his body goes into a bloody heap. Saul hears Stephen's pleas with God to forgive his persecutors. He saw the glory of God on Stephen's faith. He saw something happen in Saul's heart that he never got over. Or to put it another way, I mean, if we're on this side of it, we would say that Stephen's ministry was very minimal. He waited some tables, he preached one sermon, and then he got killed. What impact did he have? But what you see is he is the link. He is one of the instruments that God actually uses to convert the apostle Paul. Paul is not converted by seeing Stephen delivered. He's not converted because he sees Stephen like, hey, you know what? Everybody bowed their knee and worshiped Jesus, and all these people got saved. That happened with Peter. But here a few verses later, a few chapters later, Stephen preaches just as well, just as passionately, and they stone him versus getting saved with Peter. You're like, what happened? And this is what you kind of got to understand when you talk about God's sovereignty and the way God works. And here's the, here's the main truth. Whether God Abrahams you, which is... When God Abrahams you, which is blessing, when God blesses you, you praise God. And that's good. That's, that's the platform we want. If we prefer, there's not anybody in here that's like, I would like a platform of blessing and to show the world that a person that's blessed can love Jesus as well. We like that. I like that platform better. So when God Abrahams you, you bless God and thank God because you know where it came from. But when God jobs you, you show what it looks like for a person to have pain and trust God. Or to put it another way, when you look at this whole picture right here, sometimes the platform God gives you is success. You score the touchdown, you get the good doctor's reports, you get the promotion, your company explodes in growth. But sometimes you gotta get this. Sometimes your biggest pain, sometimes, listen to me, this is the word that, has, that God has for a lot of you. Sometimes your biggest pain is God's greatest platform. Sometimes your biggest pain is the platform that God uses more than 20 different ways that he is going to bless you. Your pain is you drop the pass, you get the cancer, you have the pink slip. I'll give you one example. Some of you all were here with me, uh, it's probably nine years ago. Nine years ago, when we were making substantial changes, there were a lot of things. When you change stuff in the church, I don't know if you all know this, but people get tense. You ever notice that? But anyway, people get kind of tense. and um, So we were trying to be smart about change and stuff like this. I, I remember when we were catching a bunch of grief because of how dark it was. Just, I mean, you won't, anyways, not wearing a tie. I understand. Okay, I'm sorry. This is good counseling for me. Um, but probably the first year, the, 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 the uh, top ten moment was probably a year and a half, a year and a half or so uh, into it, and we did a deal called Cardboard Testimonies. You guys have probably seen it. You can only really kind of do it one time, but it's amazingly, that was the day. The reason it stood out is because I was just getting to know people, and I heard their stories, and, you know, I think God showed us a lot about how he can use, you know, 
some different methods in which to get his word across. But basically what cardboard testimonies are, what they sound like, they're pieces of cardboard that are cut out. And on the front side, people walk up here on the platform. On the front side is this is what my life was like before Jesus. And then they turn the thing over and this is what my life has been afterwards. There were some very, very, very moving ones from just the way that God had worked. I was reading about another church that did the same thing that had an unusual story. And it, it basically, you know, it's doing the same thing about, uh, you know, before and after Christ, but there's a couple of little caveats in here. So they were having the cardboard testimonies at this other church and people were coming up to the front in succession and revealing their cards. And during the presentation, a woman and a man, they walked on stage together. That's not normal. They walked on stage together. The front of her card said, diagnosed with MS, diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, diagnosed with MS. Normally she'd flip it over right there. But she didn't. She goes up there, front of her car, diagnosed with MS. His said, the doctor who diagnosed the disease, an atheist. He flips his over, and it says, through her testimony, baptized last month. Then she flipped hers over and said, worth it. Now, what that is telling me is, are you willing for your story to be a strand of God's glory woven into somebody else's story so that despite the pain, if God's going to use it, you can say, worth it. It's worth it if you can actually use the pain that I'm going through. I will just tell you, there's nothing more freeing, more liberating than embracing that the events of your life are not just about you. That God is the main character. The pursuit of his glory in history is history's driving force. And I would just submit to you this, and this is easy. This is what you got to remember. Some of you are there now. Listen to me. Some of you are there now. Think how much this would just change your perspective and then we're going to pray. Think about if your first thought in your pain was, God, you are sovereign. You are going to use this problem for the accomplishment of your purposes. If you just ask that one question, how would that change everything? God, I understand you're sovereign. You allowed this. You're going to use this for your agenda, your mission, your purposes. I'll give you one verse. And this was a verse that can drive people crazy because it's such a misunderstood verse. And here's the, some of you all have this on needlepoint. Some of you have this on a coffee cup. Some of you have, and don't go home and throw it away. I'm not saying that, but just understand what it says. And there's Psalm 46, Psalm 46 verse 10 says, be still and know that I am God. Raise your hand if you've heard that verse. Okay. Most all of you have. Some of you have it on a coffee mug and you drink coffee and you listen to like George Benson or smooth jazz or whatever. And you're like, oh, this is about being still and hearing from God. Now that's kind of true, but understand the rest of the verse says, it says, be still and know that I am God and I will be exalted among the nations. That's the rest of the verse. So what the verse is saying is you are saying, God, in my pain, in the circumstance that I'm in right now, in the stuff that is hurting the very, very most, it's not about some cool little moment with you and God. It's about stopping in the worst of moments and the worst of pain, the worst of difficulty and saying, God, you are God. You will exalt your name in the nations. And this problem is somehow going to contribute to that agenda. And so what you've got to ask is, and what you've got to go back to, what you, all right, what you've got to go back to, we're done. What you've got to go back to is that when something bad happens, not if it happens, but when something happens, good or bad, when you can sit there and say everything in my life, good and bad, is sovereignly ordered by the almighty God, given to me for the purpose of God's mission. So when something bad happens, you lose your job, your health goes down, 
Your first reaction is, God, you gave me this disability, this disease, this loss, this failure, this pink slip to help further your mission. What if your first reaction was this? God, how can I leverage this? How can you leverage this for the furtherance of the mission? Everything would change.